Welcome to the Elevate Life Church podcast of the week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Keith Craft. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit elevatelife.com. If you remain standing with us and just put your hand over your heart, if you're new with us, this is not our time to say the Pledge of Allegiance, but we just make some declarations from our heart. So let's say it together. It's on the screen. I am who God says I am a child of God, the righteousness of God. I am the apple of God's eye. I am God's workmanship, created for good works, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Today, I open up my mind to receive the Word of God so I can think like God, be like God, and do life the way God intended for me to live. Let's lift up our hands, say this with me. Come Holy Spirit, help me elevate my thinking so I can elevate my life in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, would you just greet somebody around you and tell them they're looking good and you're glad you're in the house of God with them? A few years ago, I wrote a poem entitled, What Easter is About. Easter is about the greatest story ever told. It's about a father whose love is more precious than gold, who sent his only son Jesus to die for the sins of man, to reveal to everyone who would believe that God has a perfect plan. Easter is about the greatest love ever shown. It's about a son who willingly gave up his throne. To come live as a servant to show a better way, his actions and words were God's heart on display. Easter is about a cross, a crucifixion, sin, and shame. It's about Jesus' body that was broken, wounded, and maimed. He took our punishment He paid our price. He proved himself our friend, the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. Easter is about a grave and a tomb they placed him in. The devil and all hell rejoiced because it looked like a sure win. But three days later, there was no body found. Jesus rose from the dead because no grave could hold his body down. Easter is about death being swallowed up in victory. It's about the greatest triumph in all of history. It's not about a teacher, a religion, or philosophy of man. Easter is about Jesus Christ, the solid rock on which you can stand. Easter is about his story. It's about a no greater love. It's about a God who sent his son to earth from above. Easter is about you becoming all God created you to be through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus came to set you free. That's what Easter is all about. You know, when I think about Easter and I think about, you know, just history and uh, different celebrations and how the world celebrates and even our schools take off uh, on Good Friday, I think about really Easter first and foremost is about how much God loves you. It's about how much God loves you. It's not just about an empty tomb. It's not just about an empty cross. It's not just about Jesus who gave his life for your sins and my sins. 
But it's about how much he loves us and the why of the cross, the why of Jesus' death, the why of the nails and the whip and the crown of thorns. You see, Easter really is about how much God loves you. The most important conversation that there ever was in the Bible is found in John, the third chapter, between a man by the name of Nicodemus and Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had one of those important conversations. Hopefully you have. If you're married, it probably precipitated an important conversation. But there are conversations that are more important than others. And the Bible records one such conversation that I believe is the most important conversation that anyone could ever have. This religious leader named Nicodemus was one of only 69 people who were in charge of the religious affairs of the entire nation of Israel. He was a Pharisee. He was a Sanhedrin. And that may not mean much to you, but the truth is he was a very powerful man and he was a very wealthy man. And the Bible says in John, the third chapter, that he came to Jesus at night. And, you know, we can conjecture about that and wonder about that. But the truth is he didn't want to be seen. He didn't want to have to answer questions of his friends. He just wanted to have this conversation with this rabbi, this teacher. And what this shows us first and foremost is it doesn't matter what time it is in your life. Jesus just wants to have a conversation with you. He wants to know you and he wants you to know him. And Nicodemus came and he started the conversation by saying, rabbi or teacher, he said, we know that you're sent from God because there's no one that could do these miracles if they weren't sent from God. And again, he wasn't asking him any question, but you know, you've probably been in a conversation like that where somebody's talking to you and you know they want you to answer them even though they haven't asked a question. And Jesus didn't just respond necessarily the way that Nicodemus thought he was going to respond. Hey, we know you're a teacher. You know, Jesus could have said, yeah, you know, I, I'm a teacher. That's who I am. You can just call me rabbi. He didn't say that. Here was his response to Nicodemus saying, rabbi, we know that you're sent from God because you couldn't do all these miracles. And Jesus looked at him and said, you must be born again. I must be born again. He said, yes, you must be born again. And this theological leader, this man, by the way, when you were a Pharisee and when you were a Sanhedrin, you had to have the whole Old Testament memorized word for word. And this man who not only knew the word, but had the word memorized, said, how can, how can a person be born again? How can a person go back inside their mother's womb? And he, I'm sure he said that with a smile on his face. And Jesus said, I'm not talking about that. He said, you see, what's born of the flesh is flesh. He said, I'm talking about your spirit. That your spirit has to be born again. So let me just pause in this conversation, in this story and tell you this, that we are not just human beings today right here having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And what's amazing about relationships and the people that we relate to, and I'm talking about if you're married, the person that you've chosen over all others to be married to, is that you're not drawn to somebody because they're necessarily the best looking person in the world, although in your eyes they are. 
You're not drawn to them because they have such a great personality. They have a pleasing personality. But really what attracts people to people is their spirit. In the world that we live in, you know, meanness is not an act. It's a spirit. And therefore, so is love. Kindness is not just an act of kindness. There's a spirit of kindness. The Bible talks about the fruit of the spirit. That the fruit of the spirit is love. What does that tell us? That love is a spirit. It's something that is, you can't even, it's not tangible, but you know when you feel it and you know when you give it. That, that the fruit of the spirit is love. It's joy. It shows us that joy is a spirit. That the fruit of the spirit is peace. I don't know about you, but on any given day, I can have more than I ever want to, to be in strife about. And yet oftentimes the strife and the, the, the conflict that we feel is on the inside. We can't even identify it. Why we feel the way that we feel. The Bible goes on to say love and joy and peace and gentleness and faith and meekness and temperance and long suffering. These are all fruit of the spirit. And what is God trying to show us that, that these things are of the spirit. So Faith is a spiritual thing. So Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus and he said, he, he says, the wind comes and the wind goes and you can't pick it up and you can't feel it. He said, that's how your spirit is. And he said, so your spirit must be born again. And then this very famous quote, this very famous scripture this very famous saying that encompasses 26 words was spoken by Jesus himself. It's found in John 3:16. For God so loved the world. You know, I've always taught here in our church that if you really love somebody and you're going to tell somebody you love them, don't just say you love them, but in your best Barry White voice if you're a man, say I so love you. Not just that I love you, but I so love you. The Bible says that God doesn't just love you. The Bible says that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son, that if you would believe on him, you would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is not just a scripture. This is not just 26 words. This is not just a saying. This is not just a quote. This was in the middle of a conversation, the most important conversation that there ever was. You must be born again. I'll never forget, I, I thought I knew about love, and I think everybody at some point thinks they know about love, and then there's some people that figure out, I don't know anything about love. But, uh, you know, there's church songs, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. I mean, you know, there's church. If you've been in church, you've heard that song. But anyway, there's, there's, like, there's like this quest for love. And I thought I knew what love was. Uh, but, you know, there was a day when my wife who's on the front rows, the co-pastor of this church, Sheila, Pastor Sheila, I call her Pastor Precious. She came in and she said, I'm pregnant. And, oh, that's awesome. We went through what was called Lamaze classes. I don't even know if they have them anymore because they don't work. And here's why I'm gonna tell you they don't work. 
You're supposed to go to these classes, and for those of you who are younger, again, maybe you've never heard of them because I'm sure they're old school. But you would go to these classes for six weeks and, and to prepare for a baby being born, a man and a woman, the woman kind of sits in between your legs and it's just this sweet little thing and her back is towards you and, and you go through this process of, of when a contraction comes, how to breathe. How many of y'all remember some of this? Some of y'all know. And you, you take all your time and you go through these classes and you, you learn when the contraction comes, here's how you're going to help her stay focused because so, she's going to be in a lot of pain. And so you learn how to breathe. Six weeks, I learned that. All these years later. Well, it was time to practice it. The baby was being born. It was July 28th, 19... I was just making sure she was paying attention. In 1987, she's on the front row. She's looking at her phone, but I got her attention, didn't I? Anyway, so she says, listen, I've heard all I want from you my whole life. So, but it came time, July 28th, 1987, my son was going to be born. Well, we got into the living room and the monitor was there and the nurse told us and they said, okay, when the contractions come, you just help her breathe. And I said, man, I'm ready for this. So all of a sudden, here comes the first contraction. I go, okay, Sheila, here we go. Here we go. We practiced six weeks. Here we go. She wasn't breathing. She was holding her breath. I go, hey, hey, listen, I don't want you to hold your breath. I went, we went through these classes because I want you to, I'm here to help you. I'm here to coach you. I'm here to get you through this. She just kind of looked at me in a way like I'd never seen her look. The next contraction was coming, and I said, okay, here we go. The contraction's coming. Let's breathe. She looks at me, and she goes. I said, no, no, no. We've practiced this. We've gone through the classes. Men, how many of you know? We've read the instruction manual. This is the way it's supposed to work. Here's the logic. By the time we got to the third or fourth contraction, I'm going, shh, shh, come on, you can breathe. You can do it. I'm going to help you get through this. She goes. I lean down and she goes, don't say anything. Don't say one word. Tell me when the contraction is coming and be quiet. <laughs> Six weeks of classes. We got through it. She held her breath. I've never seen anybody hold their breath so long. She said, just tell me when the contraction's coming. The contraction would come. She'd hold her breath. I go, this is not what we learned. This is not how it's supposed to happen. Finally, my son, in whom I was already well pleased, is coming forth. And I'm telling you, when he came out of his mommy's stomach, he was the most beautiful, cone-headed, gray-green baby I had ever seen in my life. His head was a perfect cone. They put a cap on it. I went... Is that gonna always be like that? I, gotta, I really, I just did not know. In that moment, I'm crying, and for one of the only times in my entire life, God spoke to me. I'm talking about like I knew it was God's voice. And he said, you see what you're feeling right now? 
And out loud, I said, yes. When I did, the doctor was still working on Sheila and she turned around. I go, and I'm just, uh, I'm just talking to God. She goes, okay. And in that moment, God spoke to me and he said, that's how I feel about you every day. In that moment, I had never had that feeling before. In that moment, when I saw my son born, I had never felt what I was feeling before. And in that moment, God spoke to me and said, do you see what you're feeling? That's how I feel about you, Keith, every day. Can I tell you that Easter is about how much God loves you and about how much he cares about you. The Bible says in Romans, the fifth chapter, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. But Easter also is about Jesus being who he claimed to be. He wasn't just a teacher. He didn't just say, hey, here's what I'm going to do and not do it. In fact, on Instagram today, I posted this this morning. And this year, Sheila and I had the privilege to go to Israel with about 70 of our church people. And I said, I have been to the empty tomb with a witness, Sheila Craft. He is risen indeed. But it's that inscription on the outside of the tomb of Jesus in Israel that I love from Romans 1.4. And here's what it says. Jesus Christ declared with power to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And can I tell you that history has proven they can't find his bones. He is risen from the dead just like he said he would. And here we are 2,000 years later celebrating Easter together. But even before Jesus died, there was a man named Lazarus. He was a dear friend of Jesus, and, and he was dying. And some of, of Lazarus' family sent for Jesus to come because they knew that Lazarus was going to die. By the time Jesus showed up, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And when they saw Jesus coming, one of Lazarus' sisters ran and fell at the feet of Jesus. And here's what she said, if you had just been here our brother wouldn't have died. Why didn't you come? And Jesus looked at her and said, your brother will rise again. He said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live forever. Do you believe this? And she said, I believe. You see, Easter really is about Jesus proving who he claimed to be. But then here's the last thing I want to tell you today. Easter is ultimately about you. It's about me. The year was 1860. It was September 14th. And this is an actual flyer on what happened that day in the top left-hand corner. There was a man by the name of Charles Blondin. He was the greatest tightrope walker that ever lived. But on this day, he would prove it once and for all. He stretched a tightrope between the American side of Niagara Falls to the Canadian side of Niagara Falls. It was 270 feet in the air. And as he gave these flyers out and as the newspapers reported it, about 4,000 Americans gathered on the American side and about 5,000 Canadians gathered on the Canadian side. And Blondin stood on the American side and he said, how many of you believe I can walk across this tightrope? And with one voice, they all said, we believe. 
And he stepped out on that tightrope and he started walking across. 270 feet below him was Niagara Falls. Beside him was Niagara Falls. He made it all the way across. The Canadians were beside themselves. There was about 5,000 or so of them and they were chanting his name, Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. He said, how many of you think I can go back across? And they said, we believe. He said, this time I'm gonna go across backwards. And he stepped on the tightrope and he began to walk across backwards. Behind him, he could hear the Americans, about 4,000 of them, chanting his name, Blondin, Blondin, Blondin. He made it all the way across. He said, how many of you believe I can go back across? And man, now they're just in a fury. They said, we believe. He said, this time I'm going to take a wheelbarrow. And he takes a wheelbarrow and he begins to roll it across the tightrope. He gets to the Canadian side and he said, how many of you believe that I can do it again? Well, by now they knew. They said, we believe. He said, this time I want to take somebody on my back. <laughs> An amazing thing happened that day. The crowd grew weirdly silent. <laughs> he said, will any of you get on my back? You've seen me do it now. Would you get on my back? Not one Canadian would. You might say that's smart. He walked across to the American side again. They knew something was up. And he said, how many of you believe I can go back across? And they shouted with one voice, two different countries, same message. We believe. He said, this time I want to take somebody on my back. Just like in Canada, the Americans had the same response. They went deathly quiet until one man stepped out of the crowd. He said, I'll do it. And he crawled on Blondin's back. And they said that he could have outweighed him as much as 40 pounds. And Blondin started walking across that tightrope and not only made history that day, but he also taught us that there's a whole lot of people who say we believe, but they don't take action. You see, Easter, as in life is about you and what you believe. Beliefs are very personal. All of us have beliefs, they're very personal. In fact, if I could describe beliefs this way, beliefs are like roots of the tree. You don't, you don't know how roots look because you don't see the roots, but how the tree grows is based on the roots of the tree. That's how our beliefs are. All of us have beliefs. And they're by default or by, they're by design. Some of us believe like the, the woman who always cut the ends off the ham. And her husband said, why do you always cut the ends off the ham? She said, because my mother did. So he went to her mother and said, why do you cut the ends off the ham? She said, because my mother did. He went to the grandmother. He said, why do you always cut the ends off the ham? She said, because I never had a pan big enough for the ham to fit into and you know what some people do? They don't even realize this. If they're white, they believe white. If they're black, they believe black. If they're American, they believe American. And we've got all these beliefs that we have that are very unique and specific to us. And yet the reason Easter is about us is because Jesus wants you to know you must be born again. And it's not just about you believing in me. It's about you living for me. It's not just about you saying, I believe, but it's about you putting your faith 
and your trust in me. It's about your spirit being born again. Not going back inside your mother's womb, but allowing Jesus Christ. The Bible says that God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son. That if you would believe, if you would take this truth, this Jesus who rose from the dead and invite him to come into your heart that you would be saved. The Bible says if any person comes to Christ, watch this, they're a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things become new. Does anybody like all things becoming new? Come on. I want to leave you today with three questions. And here's the first one. Would you like to have every sin Everything that you've ever done wrong, forgiven. Now, some of you, maybe you haven't done enough wrong to somebody that you need their forgiveness, but I think most of us have. How awesome would it be to know that every sin that you ever have committed, are committing, or will commit is forgiven by Jesus Christ? That's the power of the cross. The Bible says if you confess your sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to make you new again. One of Jesus' disciples went to him and said, how many times can a person sin like the same sin, like, like seven times and still be forgiven? And Jesus said, no, the same sin, 70 times seven. Well, wait, I'm not that good in math. Is that like 490 times? Yeah. In other words, he's saying to infinity and beyond that the blood that I shed for you covers all of your sin. Here's the second question. Would you like to have the same power on the inside of you that raised Jesus from the dead? I mean, how, how did Jesus raise from the dead? Look, here's what the Bible says in Romans 8. If the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from death lives in you, then he who raised Christ from death will also give you life to your mortal bodies by the presence of his Spirit that's in you. Easter is about you because you can have that same presence. The Bible says it. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can dwell in you. But then here's the last question. The last question is, would you like to have your future secured to know where you're going after you die? I don't think there's one person here that really wouldn't like to that question to be answered, but only you can answer that question. The Bible records in John 20 that on this day, on Sunday, what we now call Easter, Resurrection Day, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. You see, when someone would die in that day, they would wrap them, they would embalm, they would, they would, they would, they would actually put, not embalm them, but they would put these, 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 uh, these herbs on them and wrap their body 
in these herbs. In fact, what's interesting is I mentioned Nicodemus earlier in John 3. Nicodemus is mentioned again when Jesus died that he went with, uh, with the one who owned the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, and he brought over a hundred pounds of herbs because he was very wealthy and he, he helped to wrap Jesus' body, this man that had had this most important conversation. And what's so interesting is that, that the linen clothes were lying there, but the first disciple didn't go in, the one that beat Peter in the race. But then Simon Peter came and he followed him and he went in the tomb and he saw the linen clothes lying there. But I want you to notice verse 7 in John 20. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen clothes, but it was folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in after Peter went in. Now, he'd already kind of stooped and looked in and saw the linen clothes, but he didn't notice the separate napkin that was over Jesus' face that was folded. But Peter said, look at this. He looked in there and he saw it. And what did he see? The Bible says he saw it and he believed. You know what he saw? He saw the folded napkin. The first time he looked, he didn't see it. This is how we are sometimes with God. Like we take a look, we come to church, we, we open ourselves up. Like we, okay, yeah, I believe in God, but we never see it. What did he see the second time that he didn't see the first time? Not just a bunch of linen clothes, but he saw a folded napkin. And when he saw that, he believed. Why? Well, listen to this. In order to understand the significance of the folded napkin, you have to understand a little bit about Hebrew tradition of that day. The folded napkin had to do with the master and the servant, and every Jewish boy knew the tradition. That's why when he looked first, he didn't see it, but he looked the second time, and he saw the linens, but then he saw it. Peter said, look, the folded napkin. You see, every Jewish boy knew this tradition. When the servant set the dinner table for the master, he made sure that it was exactly the way the master wanted it. The table was furnished perfectly, then the servant would just wait, just out of sight until the master had finished eating. And the servant would not dare touch that table until the master was finished. Now, if the master was done eating, he would rise from the table, wipe his fingers and his mouth, clean his beard, and would wad up the napkin and toss it onto the table. The servant would then know to clear the table, for in those days, the wadded up napkin meant, I'm done. But if the master got up from the table and the folded napkin and he folded his napkin and he laid it beside the plate, the servant would not dare touch the table because the folded napkin meant, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. You say, what does that mean? Let me tell you what it means. The first disciple looked into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes and he stepped back out. When Peter looked in, he saw the linen clothes, but then he saw the folded napkin that before Jesus walked out of that tomb alive as a sign of who he was and what he was going to do in the future, he took time to fold the napkin. So the second time when the disciple looked in, Peter said, look, the folded napkin, 
And guess what? He saw it and he believed. Can I just tell you today, your future can be secure because of a folded napkin that's a scripture in the Bible. And Jesus wants you to know something. He not only is who he says he is, but everything that he did was for you. It was for me. And yet even one of his disciples didn't see it at first. Even one of the women, Mary Magdalene, said, where have they taken his body? Jesus said he was going to rise again. But when Peter got there, oh, by the way, in case you don't know this part of the story, Peter was the one that denied Jesus three times. But when he looked at the tomb, he saw it was empty. And that was one thing. He saw the linens thrown over in the corner. That was one thing. But when he saw the master, our savior, Jesus Christ, God's son, had taken time to fold the napkin. This was the final sign. I didn't just rise again, but I'm coming back for everyone who believes. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Make sure to get your copy of Pastor Keith Craft's book, Your Divine Fingerprint, and visit elevatelife.com for other exciting new content from Elevate Life Church.